It's the Paul Patterson and Tom Scallon podcast show. They're talking the walk and not about sloppy, sloppy Joes. So, talking walk, talk, talking walk. Talking walk, talk, talking walk. Talking walk, talk, talking walk show. Welcome back to Talking the Walk. This is episode nine, Little Giants. I am Paul Patterson. I'm Tom Scallon. And I'm Scott Heitland. Um, third guest on the pod today, and we'll get we'll get to um, a little bit more about him at Criswell's Corner as we as we get moving through and. Again, you know, a thank you to, to Jake Brown for the original music that you heard and that you will hear at the end, uh, whether Scallon likes it or not. Um, the, the outro, we at least, because um, I think, what'd you say? It's an acquired taste to something like I that? I said it's an acquired taste. I didn't, I didn't uh, cast any, any negativity towards his talent. I just said <laughs> that the outro is an acquired taste. It for surely wasn't a ringing endorsement. Um, or any real positivity to it either. Well, what's bad about it is um, I now received threats from him. You know, he's, we shot him out every time from the podcast. So now he sent me texts with different gifs of things that are going to happen. And now Solon's out to get me again after I finally got on his good side. So, yeah, well, you, you, at some point in time, you'll put the shovel up. Instead of continuing to dig, you'll, you'll just get rid of it. Um, and then you get original artwork, you know, Bailey Bishop and then uh, Tyler Stanley with our, our social media director. And, and again, hop on social media, you know, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and start following and start interacting. You know, if you don't have our number or, or don't send us a message through email, um, hop on and start following us there and, and start communicating with us. Uh, our non sponsor uh, for this episode is O'Shea Chevrolet uh, from Urbania. You know, Kevin O'Shea is the owner, you know, former a uh, former um, Heisman Trophy winner and current, I don't know, probably not anymore, but used to be uh, coach of the Urbania um, Cowboys. Fairly dominant um, peewee football team. Okay, moving on to podcast confessional. I thought maybe there might be a comment coming from you too. On that one. So, podcast <laughs> confessional. Um, I think we're both laughing too hard to comment on the sponsor, non-sponsor. Because this yeah. could be a twenty. This could be a, a twenty-minute segue into all things dumb. <laughs> well, that's true. But you know, if you know us well enough, you know that that I mean, there there's not a whole lot of intelligence coming out um, when when we get together and and do stuff like this. It just isn't. Um, so my first podcast confessional, and, and I, this isn't like a fear. Um, you know, when I see a wasp, I don't necessarily get all worked up and anxious. However, we now, because we, you know, outside of our, our uh, um, in our patio, we've got a, our big retaining wall that, that have seats in it and everything. And there's, you know, holes in the, in the retaining wall. And we've got the, the black and yellow wasp. I don't know what the paper wasp, I think is what they're referred to properly. Um, we've got them living in there and cause no issues. You know, you, you're not agitating them or whatever. Now, we also have some black wasps, which I do believe is the, the correct term for them is mud daubers. And they have now built a nest for the second year in a row underneath the landing coming down off of our deck 
down to get to our patio, which shouldn't be a problem. However, that's where the firewood is kept. And for those of you who know, I like to fire pit, which then means having access to firewood is vitally important for me. I, now, so I said at the beginning, you know, that wasps don't, don't really bother me whatsoever. However, my anxiety goes through the roof when I start trying to kill them so that I can get to firewood so that I can fire pit properly with the um, required aged wood that I'm trying to put in the fire pit. So a couple things to consider here, Paul. Um, you just said there's no intelligence coming out of this, but I'm gonna lay a little Cliff Clavin on you. This has Ooh. to do with pheromones. Norm. So the reason, the reason why those, uh, the reason why those nests keep coming back is because when you just kill it with spray, you're just killing the wasp or the hornet or whatever. You have to do a special spray to uh, get rid of the pheromones. Otherwise, they'll keep coming back to that same spot over and over and over again. Okay, good to know. Good to know. This is this so is maybe maybe we should have done Scallons exterminating. Um, well, for our the reason reason why I know that is because um, not because I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express, but because some bug guy came around to everybody in the neighborhood and was explaining why I needed to buy his three hundred and sixty dollar pheromone ridding spray. Okay, so, and I did and I did pass on that. Two, one of the things you could do is not fire pit when it's 95 degrees out and the humidity is terrible. But that doesn't, what, what, that doesn't have anything to do with the nest underneath there for me to get at firewood. Whether, whether I fire pit at 95 degrees or I fire pit at 75 degrees, the nest is still there. You could just move your firewood pile. Well, I, go. I have to get rid of them in order to move the firewood pile now because it's there. <laughs> You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm in a little bit of a pickle um, when it comes to the wasp and, I, and I'm struggling with it a little bit. However, I do love spraying the foam um, wasp killer because it shoots a really long ways, very powerful, um, and it's pretty awesome. So one of the things we did during quarantine is we did, uh, we have some new staff and we decided to try to get to know each other better. So Paul had interviews where I interviewed him and Paul interviewed me and we each got paired up with somebody um, that Paul paired us up with. And uh, my first question for Paul was, do we need an intervention about fire pitting? <laughs> the amount of time that he spends fire pitting. I, I know almost every night I'm gonna receive some sort of, well, maybe not tonight because it's probably, but every night I'm gonna receive, here's the sunset at my fire pit, even though it's 90 degrees. Um, so little known fact, uh, one, it's now just Fridays and Saturdays, weeknights I can't get up, um, and Scott is also on one of those um, text, group texts, so he also gets those. <laughs> oh, okay. And, so. and I've also wondered, does anybody play golf at the course behind your house? Because oh. every picture, the course looks beautiful and I never see anybody playing. It is always busy. Legacy is always busy. It is incredible. So the, the second piece of podcast confessional is it, it's, we're in grad party season, you know, and, and, and especially now, the way that things worked out in the, in the spring is grad parties are fairly late. You know, they're, they're happening now. And for me, grad parties are one of those things that does cause me an awful lot of anxiety. One, it's an uncontrolled situation for me. You know, you don't know who you're going to run into. You don't know who you're going to see. Or, or what kind of 
um, conversation you're going to end up having. Um, and I am not good with those situations. And so there is always the, there is always the good um, Paul on, on the left shoulder and there's always the bad Paul on the right shoulder telling me, no, you don't go. And then good saying, yes, you should go. Um, and I try to make it to almost all of them that I get invited to. Well, I try to make it to all of them. Sometimes it just doesn't work out. Um, but the ones that I go to, I am, it, it, it causes me a lot of anxiety. That's, I think you should all know that. It's a big deal when I go to a grad party. I thought you were just going to say you were getting stressed if you should do the uh, walking taco or the pulled pork. I don't eat at any of them because eating requires me to stay longer. I just want to get in, say hi, drop off my, my gift, and then you know, say hi to a few people. I love looking at the pictures, check out the pictures, and then usually we're gone. Unless we run into somebody that we want to talk to. I'm usually a sucker for Coach Scallon, what they have. So... You know, if, if the menu is right, I probably will stop and eat something. And I try to start my day by making sure that it's not desserts at the first few places. I try to save those for later in the day oh. and, uh, you know, kind of spread it out. But pasta salad's always going to get me. Anything that's grilled, smoked, pulled pork, that kind of stuff's going to get me. And then, uh, you know, every now and then someone's got grandma's cupcakes or cookies and those kind of things. And I usually end up coming home eating way more than I should have. So, so this year has to be difficult for you because unless Dallas Center Grime grad invites list the menu, you usually have to do your research prior to. And now here you are in the summer, haven't been able to have the contact you usually have. Are you, are you like checking out Twitter to see if kids are showing, hey, I got pasta salad and then boom, I'm off to Kale Dewey's house? It was, uh, I had to go into it blind this year. It was very unsettling. Um, because, you know, we, we didn't have all those school days, you know, to hear the kids talk about their graduation houses and me to say, hey, what do you, what are you having over at your place this year? So it was, it was a little tough, but um, the uh, winner this year was the, uh, uh, my wide receiver, Isaac Boley. They had grandma's homemade enchiladas, and they were phenomenal. Well, that sounds great. Uh, hanging out with Rob Boley doesn't sound great <laughs> at all. I mean, that feels like a terrible experience based on the years that I did have to hang out with him. He, uh, he was so busy that I didn't get a chance to talk to him a whole lot. So, you know, I guess I can't really say whether it was a bad thing or a good thing, but uh, you know, I, I enjoy being around Rob. He's a good dude. So you're going to, we're going to have to, you have to share stories with me later. Maybe I'll have something I can poke at him with. Well, first of all, he's from Dowling. That starts off rough for him, but <laughs> we'll, we'll go from there. At the, at the end of the day, it, it sounds like whether you talked to him or not didn't matter because the enchiladas were, were that good. They were fantastic. Yeah. Um, so the, the final piece for me uh, when it comes to grad parties, it, I just want to make sure that everybody is aware um, that Costco has decided to um, discontinue their sheet cakes. Uh, and I, it, those of you who know me well know that the, the, the Costco chocolate cake, there is nothing finer for a, a dessert than that on this face of the earth. And I am still thoroughly convinced that there are tiny little food angels from heaven that come down and make that chocolate cake because it is that delicious. However, you have to now buy one of their smaller cakes. Um, and the reason why they went to that was because of the fact that, you know, the sheet cake serves too many and they're trying to encourage people to reduce the, the crowd size. Um, so that, that is some sad news. 
however, they're still making some of their cakes are just small. So that wraps up uh, podcast confessional, you know, the wasps. Um, hopefully next week I, I can come back to you and tell you what I, what I took care of and if I got rid of the pheromones or not. Um, and then the last piece, you know, of course, going to grad parties causes an awful lot of anxiety and, and uh, we're on the downhill side of it though, at least right now. Um, so now back to end of feedback. Uh, first thing I think we need to talk about is Jill Martin. Uh, she, she for surely corrected us, you know, as far as gave us the, the dates. Um, 98, 99, and 99 and 2000 were the, were the years in which she was not a part of those teams, but they went back-to-back years and then did not make it back to state until she was a senior, which was the 03-04 basketball season. So she wanted to make sure that she, uh, she had given that. And, of course, you know, the question last week outside of trying to make sure that we, we got that was, who was the female athlete that you remember that was most dominant in one sport? So single sport dominance. And I think Scott, you had a, you had a couple of you you must have listened to Tom and took his advice with a couple of different um, choices. Yeah, when uh, when you guys posed that question, I think I thought right away about you know who here at Dallas Center Grimes you know really stood out during the time that I've been here and. Uh, I think the first one female that comes to mind is Paige Lowry. Um, she had just a stellar high school career as a softball pitcher, uh, won multiple state titles uh, here in softball, and then went on to college and was a national champion in Oklahoma. And uh, we're fortunate now that she's back living in this area, and she's come in and speak, in my, speak to my classes a few times and does a great job. And then um, I was driving home from uh, the Clear Lake area when I was listening, and I thought right away, too, of Lynn Lorenzen, who was a just absolutely amazing six-on-six basketball player uh, back in the day from Ventura High School. And uh, I think uh, had something ridiculous, like a 62-point-per-game average or something just out of this world like that. I didn't look anything up, but uh, those two jumped out at me right away when you were talking about female dominance. Uh, which is it, it, interesting that you mentioned Len Lorenzen because uh, Alan Stanley, who is the father to our uh, social media director Tyler Stanley mentioned Len Lorenzen and he brought up how Norwalk had to play Ventura uh, back in the small class state tournament side of of the bracket um, and I think it was back-to-back years I think it was 1980 and 1981 and both of those games were really really close and Alan just talked about how our former coach uh, Jim Kane basically game plan to make sure that no one else touched the ball and it was just her that had to do all the scoring. And it was like 62-58 was the final of the one game. And it did really, really close in both years. But um, it was, I, when you texted me that today, initially that Lynn Lorenzen, um, that was the first thing that came to mind was that Alan had, had also mentioned her. Um, I had a couple people contact me and one was Melissa Bice. Uh, she talked about Lisa Brinkmeyer. And I'd forgotten all about, I didn't know a lot about Lisa Brinkmeyer's stellar high school career. I remember her more as a Drake basketball player. But uh, uh, obviously she was really good at basketball. And then Coach Heitland talked about all the other things that she was good in a four-sport athlete, I think. Um, And then uh, Coach Krolik. Well, two things about Coach Krolik. One, he and his wife, Lindsay, take their dog, uh, which is like a ham-sized dog, Pug, kind of fat guy. He's skinnier now. They've put him on a diet. But uh, they take their dog for a walk, and their cat follows behind the entire walk. And we're talking several blocks. I witnessed that this morning, 
and he talked to me about it. It was strange. The cat's just running alongside them. Don't know why I had to tell this at this moment. Maybe it's because okay. it was weird. Um, but he mentioned Jenny Clark. Uh, and uh, I agree with <laughs> Jenny Clark. You know, obviously I'd said that before, but she ended up being dominant in Norwalk soccer, but also um, Minnesota player of the year of defense, played in the Bundesliga, um, or I think it was Bayern Munich, you know, in, on the women's side. So she's one of those that was pretty terrific too. She, she was a state champion in long jump, right? I think in track. So she was a dual yeah. sport athlete during the same sports season um, yeah. for us. And, and she played basketball with Joe, did she not? Yeah, that would have been earlier because she didn't she didn't play all the way through um, basketball. Yeah, I she, she played. played I players. thought she played on their. We'd have to look at the pictures. I thought she was out guarding people during their state run. But Jill can correct us once yeah, again. Yeah, there we go. That'll help. That'll help. Unless Jenny's listening. Um, and then um, Michelle Flores, she picked Penny Cope uh, of Carlisle for softball. Um, Christy picked Ellie Ruffage for uh, basketball. You know, she she was a pretty dominant player. Did they win it three years in a row? Pocahontas wasn't that Pocahontas? They won it for they won it two years for sure. And now I think she's at Northwest Missouri State. Um, and then the the really the only other person that we heard from other than other than uh, Jake Brown complaining about the fact that you know you basically bashed his outro song. Um, and then Brad Criswell sending a text to both of us saying how much he enjoyed the outro song. Um, Eric Neeson uh, would be the only other one that, that commented, but he didn't give us a, a female athlete. He just told us that that was probably our best podcast ever. Um, and, and we hope that we continue to get better, you know, as we move on through. So any other feedback from anybody? I think, I didn't he, said, I think he said it's the best one because um, we actually gave usable advice to parents other than all the other things we've said has meant nothing so far, so. Well, we for surely are good at giving, you know, non-advice. Non-sponsors and non-advice are uh, two of the things that we're pretty good at. Um, high school sports, we're on to high school sports. You know, I think the first thing probably need to need to talk about is, is you know, my rant last week about um, communicating. You know, we, we had heard all, the, all along that July 1, July 1, July 1, and then we heard last week that, eh, you know, maybe July 1. And then uh, Thursday of last week, I think it was, uh, Governor Reynolds came out and said, yeah, hey, everything's back, July 1, get, get, giddy up. You know, you gotta get things ready and you gotta get things all done. You gotta get your guidelines taken care of. Um, and then that basically sent everybody in a tailspin because they didn't know where to go. They, they really didn't have any help in, in setting up those guidelines. And so for me, there's one wish that comes out of, out of what we have had happened to us since May which is, I would really like it if the governor's office, the Department of Ed, the Boys Association and the Girls Union could have some sort of monthly or bi-weekly meeting in which they just let everybody know sitting at that table what's going on so that everybody is on the same page rather than going through what we've gone through, which is you know, basically a scramble when something gets announced. So I'm now done with that. Um, that, that is a big ask. Well, okay, so here we go. Dang it. Down a rabbit hole. <laughs> when we are getting ready to plan for our clinic in February with Jason Buskey 
ACE Fundraising, and the Iowa Football Coach Association. What we have to do is we've got to communicate between ACE, the IFCA, Iowa, Iowa State, and you and I. And, and basically what it boils down to is just sending updates so that everybody knows what's going on and where we're at in the process of, of having that <clears throat> plan. And it's not, it's not really that difficult of a task. It is making sure that you put it as a priority that that's what you want to get done. It doesn't have to be Governor Reynolds and Lebo, Tom Keating and Gene Berger all sitting down at the table. But I bet somebody from from each of those offices could sit down and know what's going on and, and have a conversation. That's what I'm saying. It feels like to me the uh, boys high school athletic union likes to have more control over situations and the state government likes to find ways to say it's local control unless it's about the fair and when we're going to start. Agreed. But they could still they, they could still be on the same page and know what's going on in each other's house. Maybe I could host and have a fire pit and they could come down and we could get it hashed out every week. They can help you kill wasps rather there. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Maybe we got somebody that knows a little bit more about them, you know, outside of Scallon's um, pest control, you know, outside of that. So July 1, you know, we got, got official word that July 1 we're starting, uh, which is tomorrow. And, you know, we, we as, a, as a, a collective state, are unsure as exactly how this is going to work out and how it's going to look. Um, but we're going to give it our best shot to make sure that we are we're safe and we're healthy and and we are uh, communicating with people about what needs to happen. Um, for me personally, uh, the the three things that I'm most excited about uh, starting on July one is is first and foremost the fact that I get to see kids again. Um, you know, I think I don't know if I've shared it with very many people, but you know that first graduation party, nervous, but the first party that I went to. Um, ended up staying way longer because I ran into, you know, 15 kids and I haven't seen them for months. So ended up having a really long conversation with all of them um, just to catch up. The second piece is um, kids are actually being active. You know, we now know that they've got an opportunity to come in and do what, do what they're supposed to do. And, and we get to help them with that. Um, I'm not sure how many of them have been very active. I know they're doing things but I don't know what kind of activities they've been doing as far as, are they just all lifting? Are they just all act, you know, running? What's the difference or, or what are they doing? And then the third piece for me, and this was really one of the bigger ones um, as far as why I didn't understand why we couldn't go is, is we finally get to help them. Uh, you know, right now it's been student coaches, you know, this kid getting people together to do this uh, activity and, and no adult there to help and, and make sure that they're doing it correctly and, and getting that done. And so, I'm thankful that we're back to be able to, to help supervise. Yeah, I think uh, you never go to Fairway, but I go to Fairway. So I see lots of students at Fairway because, you know, half the high school works there. And, and some um, alumni. And some yeah. alumni. And I, I think they're all pretty excited to get back. That's even if you go to Ace Hardware up here where there's still a lot of students working there are also a lot of students working there. Their big thing is they just they just want to be back in school one way or the other whether it's every other day or every day or if you make us wear masks just let us come back to school which it's nice to hear after you know all those years of oh i got to get up and go to school uh, hopefully they realize that longer than the first month you know the last six months but i would agree with you um hoping to get up and and uh see 
some of the workouts and things before I have to leave for a meeting tomorrow. Just good to see the, the kids outside of online or texting or tweeting or whatever. Well, and the other thing that's good about having us back engaged with the kids is, and I, and I know from talking to Paul in the days ahead prior to this, that, you know, now we're going to be having those right now, the kids are off doing their things if they want to do them. You know, uh, I, I think you, you mentioned one of the other podcasts, Paul, that you saw some kids up, um, you know, at the field, uh, yep. getting together and doing things on their own. And, uh, you know, same time things going on here, but I guarantee you that nobody up there is checking temperatures. Nobody up there is putting any of the precautions in place. The one good thing about us getting back involved that I think may have got lost in some of that stuff in June is, is that now with school personnel involved, we're going to probably maybe even go a little overboard these first couple of weeks about making sure that kids uh, are, are feeling good, making sure that we're not touching anything, making sure that we're cleaning stuff. And I think that's going to be a real positive thing because right now they're all just off meeting on their own and, and intermixing and mingling how they are. And, and I don't want to say that the kids are being irresponsible because I don't think they are, but there's this sort of layer of accountability now that's there where we can, you know, help hopefully manage some of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. that, that I think makes that's a huge a, difference. I agree. I think that's a great point. Uh, and it's a good way to also get kids ready for when they come back to school to say, here's some things of not totally, but how it will look like. And um, I bet the kids welcome it as well. I think they like that, that guidance. We have good leaders, just like you have good leaders. And I'm sure they've been leading as best they can, but it's nice to, to get the coaches and the different adults involved to help them out. You know, and, and it gets us back to, to our routines too. And, and I think that's important to us. I mean, that's healthy for us. Um, not, not, not just from having to hit the reset button, but also healthy for us from, from a routine side of things, you know, because we, we as humans thrive on routines. Um, and, and some of us a little bit more than others when it comes to routines. Um, you know, one of the things that probably need to, need to just continue to talk about is, you know, what happens when a, when a case of, of COVID hits, you know, and then, and then we've got programs that are getting quarantined. You know, Galen, Iowa Falls, Cedar Falls, uh, Des Moines, Lincoln, uh, just had theirs, and we're now getting to the, I think, St. John, I don't know if we mentioned it last night, or last time, St. Ed's, uh, Fort Dodge, St. Ed's, um, we're now starting to get dangerously close to what happens when you are within that, you know, your two-week quarantine is within the time frame of when district play starts, um, and, and I think that's, that's a, that's a, it's a crazy time, because your season could end before you really, you know, had a chance to finish it because of that. And, you know, one of the things that we're doing here, um, and, and I think you know, Scott and I, you had not, you and I had this conversation, uh, and I don't know what you guys decided, so I'll be curious to hear it, but we, we are not letting baseball or softball players come to any of our workouts, and we're not letting, uh, when we do our skills camps, we're not letting any baseball kids come to it just because we want to keep them as separated from us and, and lessen the likelihood of, cross-contamination, if you will. I don't know that there's a better term for it um, because it's, it is, it's, it's their time. Um, and anything quarantined, you know, any, any type of illness or whatever right now could be, could be um, ending their season. And, and we don't want to have that happen. Yeah, we really? decided the same thing okay. um, to, to do that. And, you know, conversation I had with you and I call probably five or six other people just to kind of get 
the temperature of what people out there were thinking. And, you know, I think that I just personally felt a little bit of a responsibility to do the responsible thing too. Um, because I think it, sometimes it, it's good to have, I, I think we as, as high school coaches sometimes have to balance out some of the stuff that, that, that we get seen thrown out there from time to time. And everybody's so anxious to go back and they want to go, you know, get back into this, get back into that. Um, I think, I think it was important in, in talking with you and some other people and hearing what you guys were thinking as well to let people know that, yes, this is exciting, but we also, we do have a responsibility not to, uh, you know, steal the governor's quote about Iowans being responsible. But, um, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, we're talking, you know, two, maybe three skill sessions that kids may have to miss before they come back. And that's not, uh, that's not too bad of a deal. And, and we know, you know, based on how the spring sports went, how important it is for our kids to, to be able to have their season and, and for us to try and jeopardize what baseball and softball have going or an opportunity for them to, to finish their season, however it ends up, um, just so that we can kind of get ready, you know, a little bit more ready for August is, is unfair. See now, I so I what ifed this this morning when I was talking to my wife. I'm and maybe you two have read the guidelines and have more information or better information than what I have. So let's say football gets to go, and we get into the season, um, and a team is has a case of COVID. Um, I think it's up to each county to decide what happens with those teams. And let's say we're playing Dallas Center, uh, a different county. They could say, well, you have a case of COVID-19 and, and Kale Dewey has to sit out for two weeks. And we could have a case of COVID-19 and Warren County could say your whole team has to quarantine. That's how I understand it, right? So for football, if you yes, yes, but but at this point in time, there has not been anybody that has just quarantined the one kid. From what I have seen so far across the state, everybody is quarantining the whole team for two weeks. Yeah, not not disagreeing with that. Just making sure that I'm right on how it could be done. Correct. But that also means for football, two weeks. If that comes at a time, um, especially in the last five games, but possibly in the first four games, either way, they're all, it's like playoffs the whole way through, you know, um, that's, you, you're out two weeks, you're going to have to be pretty stellar to get back into the top 16. But how does that affect, so here's my question for you there, Coach Scallon, is, is that, uh, so does that go down as a forfeit, or does that go down as a loss, and what happens, I mean, if one of those, your RPI could be so damaged that it may not make a difference, you could be done. That's what I, that's what I want to know. Boy, if that goes down as a forfeit or a loss, and you get and you're out two weeks, yeah. you now now you got to look at your kids and say, hey, you know, it's just a tough deal, but let's go let's go play hard. Which I think I feel like our kids would, and maybe they'd play with a little more chip, like they're being the opportunities being denied. But it, I think that's a crazy scenario. Um, so. Two final things right there with that one. Number one, I don't know how you recover from a two loss, no matter where you're at, whether that be preseason um, or in district, you know, and especially in district because you don't have a chance to win the district. So then you're going to have to be in at large, and that's really hard to do. And, and we know, based on how the RPI works, wins outweigh anything. 
Now, here's the other piece. In writing, somewhere in their bylaws, the association, the boys association, is that if you forfeit week one, you forfeit all nine games. So if you start the season off quarantined and unable to play week one, let's say you don't get to scrimmage and you don't get to play week one, you have to forfeit it. Does that mean that that rule is going to hold up and you are going to have to forfeit the rest of your eight games that are left on your schedule? Or are they going to make an exception to that? Is, is that like rule two, A, B, C, third paragraph, let me try to explain how it's ruled during the game, which makes no sense. Is it that? Law 27. Um, yeah. do you, would you like to know how I know that that's a rule? Yeah. Back, back when we were on the verge of going to 4A, I sent a very not nice email to Alan Bestie about us playing in 4A. And I told him in no uncertain terms that it could be a chance, it could be a situation where we forfeit a game. You know, because some of those teams were so much bigger than us and had such an advantage over us that, um, and yes, I was being a baby, so I, let's get that out of the way. Um, but I told him that we, we may have to forfeit a game, and then that's when he came back to me with that rule of if you forfeit game one, then you are out for the season, you forfeit your season, and I mean, there's a lot of other things to go with that. So, yeah, to which you replied, then we'll forfeit game two. <laughs> I think I left it alone. I was done um crying and whining at that point okay so i'll ask this question and it but it cannot we cannot venture down this rabbit hole because we'll be here all afternoon but maybe this is the year then because of these unknown scenarios that we throw out everything that we've known about postseason football in iowa and everybody makes the postseason this year to avoid to avoid uh that team that had to forfeit, which is beyond their control. Wow, you're right. We cannot. Ponder on that one for a we, while. We cannot go down. That's a podcast in and of itself. <laughs> yes. Postseason play. That, you know? that sounded like a, a future head of the uh, Iowa High School Boys Association. That sounds like a job for a great leader like you, where you could make that decision that things aren't going to be totally fair, so everybody's in the playoffs. No thanks. Oof. That's a great question, though. So well, there's our there's our preview to our next thing. We'll have to have Heitland back. Well, well and see he can bring I mean, he can bring Hutzel. We'll get the Hoover boys talking. There you go. Side note: um, one of the one of the things that I had you know originally planned long ago when we when I was thinking about podcasts was professional organizations, you know, for for coaches to be a part of, which you know, was also going to be you as our guest talking about the things from the football side of things. Um, so there's a chance you might be a multi-appearance, uh, multiple appearance kind of kind of guest for us. Um, well, so now we're back it on kinda, track. It kind of depends how it goes, though. We get, you know, we have to see our feedback and what kind of, <laughs> we, we have some people that uh, kind of rate our guests as to whether or not they're, you know, second time worthy. How many listens we get for each of the podcasts? Um, so 3A and 4A, you know, again, we talked about that, have sent out um, their sub-states, you know, and, and it's um, now basically down to, I don't know how they're going to do the seeding. You know, I don't know if they're taking all the games. I'm, I'm not sure what the answer to that is, but at some point in time, they're going to have to do seeding. 
And again, you know, and from the boys' side, 1A and 2A are going to have to start here pretty soon because they've got more teams uh, than 3A and 4A. Uh, girls, I went out and looked. I could not see anything as far as their, um, you know, their, their five classes. I have not seen anything as far as them setting up um, or releasing their, their brackets at this point or their, their teams um, at this point in time. So hopefully soon enough they'll have that out. Um, and then from, you know, the personal side from, from us, Norwalk baseball and softball had a really good week. They're now both seven and four um, moving through the, uh, moving through the season. So starting to play a little bit better and, and playing some conference teams, which is, which is always a good thing for, for that. Um, we're on to Criswell's corner. We're going to learn a little bit more about our guest, Scott Heitland, who is the uh, head football coach at Dallas Center Grimes High School, um, has been there since 2003 or four. Four was your first year, and you played us at home. Wes Bromel was, uh, was a senior that year and played an unbelievable football game um, in 2004. Anyway, that, uh, we don't need to go down that, that route. Um, however, Criswell's Corner, where we're going to spend a little time getting to know you a little bit better, where you're from, and, and uh, how you ended up at Dallas Center Rice. All right. Well, first of all, uh, first-time caller, long-time listener. That's, I've always wanted to, you know, throw that in there on a, something like this before. But uh, uh, no, so um, yeah, background. Uh, 92 graduate from Algona High School. Uh, went to, um, played, played high school football for my dad. Ran track for my dad. He was a high school football coach for over 30 years. And uh, there, there'd be another topic, uh, you know, a podcast for you sometime, uh, being coached by your, your father. Uh, there's, I'm sure there's plenty of people out there you get to come in on that one. That uh, was a great experience for me, fortunately. And so when I headed off to University of Northern Iowa after high school, um, came home my first summer of college and got my coaching authorization with the intention to coach some freshman baseball, which I ended up doing. And freshman baseball got over that year, and I got a phone call, probably the phone call that – Where you know, did you do freshman baseball at? In Algona. Okay. In Algona. So back home. And, um, yep, back home. And, uh, you know, how you, everybody has that moment that kind of maybe altered or steered them in the direction to which they are going now. And um, I'm uh, helping a buddy – do some, some just late summer work. And I get a phone call from my dad. He says, Hey, um, Ed Thomas called. And I said, well, okay. About what? And he said, well, he, he, uh, knew that you got your coaching authorization and he, uh, had a late staff member leave to go take a job in Illinois. And, um, he needs a freshman football coach. He goes, wants to know if you're interested. So I called him back and somehow or another, I guess, did something right on the phone interview, but uh, Coach Thomas uh, agreed to let me come on and coach freshman football in Parkersburg. And that phone call probably did more to influence where I'm at today than anything else. Because at the time, I was really, really wanting to be a baseball coach coming up through. Um, had a good experience in high school in baseball and uh, enjoyed that sport uh, greatly. But uh, went back to college and finished out the next three years coaching football in Parkersburg and had an unbelievable experience with uh, Coach Thomas and learning from him and just being around that atmosphere, um, just how they operated, how he interacted with kids, the um, expectation for um, excellence that they had, both of their kids, both on and off the field. Uh, it left a really big impression on me as a, as a young kid. And as I told people, I was at least smart enough at the time to pay attention and learn a few things while I was there uh, that I think just kind of stuck with me. I don't know that I intentionally tried to take him with me, but 
just how they did some things there kind of stuck with me as I went into my first couple jobs. So um, my first teaching job was at Prairie Valley at Gowrie, which is now Southeast Valley High School. Uh, Mike Sweeter is the head coach there now, but uh, uh, Mike Dick, who is the former uh, principal at Prairie Valley and used to run the Girls Athletic Union, he was my principal. And I interviewed on a Saturday morning and got offered the job and went there for three years and um, worked with some phenomenal people there. Um, probably the biggest one was Jason Klingensmith, who is now the high school principal at Sergeant Bluff Luton. And uh, they have a, just an, an outstanding high school out there, both academically and athletically. And it's no surprise because Jason's a first, first class guy and a top notch guy. Um, but left there after three years, went to Boone High School for five. And, and then in 2004, came down here and have been at Dallas Center Grimes for the past 15 years. Excellent. Um, did, did you want to tell any stories about some of your first moments in uh, Parkersburg coaching freshman football? Well, um, I thought I was a pretty good coach because I had this kid named Campman on the offensive line. And I had a kid by the last name of DeVries in the backfield. And, um, you know, football is pretty easy. You just snap the ball, you hand it off to DeVries and tell him to run behind Campman. And, uh, you know, we, we won some football games that way. And uh, probably the one time that uh, a good lesson I learned at a young age is we played a lot of freshman games on Saturday mornings. And, uh, of course, uh, Coach Thomas and the other staff would be there watching. And, and uh, it's my first year coaching football, first year calling, you know, plays even at a freshman level. And, and I'm doing the smart thing, giving the ball to the big kid in the backfield all the way down the field, we get down the goal line. I think I'm pretty smart. I call a little play action pass, throw an interception in the end zone. And all of a sudden the uh, press box window slides open and this booming voice from up top in front of uh, everybody at the stadium, Coach Thomas yells down, height, stop throwing the football. <laughs> and after the game, he uh, told me, or Coach Kearns, Al Kearns, who was another one that was a, a real big influence when I was there, he just looked at me and he said, height, sometimes you got to dance with the boy that brought you. And uh, that's a, a phrase that at the time, I'm not really sure I understood. Uh, but as I got a little bit older, you know, just realized that when, you know, when something's working, you know, you just keep, keep going to it. It's not a bad thing. But, uh, you know, had a lot of really good, good lessons and learned a lot of really good things there. Some more funny than others, but um, just really indebted to that community. Um, you know, by the time I was done, I think uh, I finished up my senior year in college. I was an assistant football coach, eighth grade basketball coach, assistant boys track coach, and I was the head baseball coach at age 22. And, uh, you know, I just can't thank the people up there enough for their support that they gave a young guy um, and for the, just the important things that they taught me when I was there. And, and think about that group that you were with, you know, and, and how influential they were not only to you, but everybody that had been through their program, you know, and, and I, I think that is, that, that's a unique experience for somebody. Um, and then not a lot of people have been able to, to experience what you did starting off, you know, your coaching career that way. Yeah. Very, I, very fortunate. I really think it's too bad because uh, that led you to be the Dallas center Grimes head football coach. And had you chosen another route, maybe you wouldn't be there and that could be better for us, but we're not supposed to be doing any colors today. <laughs> well, I think if we go back and look, we're probably a little more, I think we're, we're pretty even on things right now. <laughs> the, uh, you know, the, the other thing, and this is what I mentioned last week was, you know, from, from my end with you, you know, from, from the Iowa Football Coach Association to the National High School Coaches Alliance to um, some of the different things that, that are going on um, as far as professional organizations, 
you know, I think that's also important for people to hear uh, a little bit as to where you're at with that and, and you know, some a little bit of that background, um, you know, because you're a former you're a former president of the Iowa Football Coach Association, along with some of the things that you do from USA Football. Um, and I think that would be good to, uh, to maybe mention here too for everybody. Sure. I, I think one of the things that I learned from my dad early on is that dad was a very, very proud member of the Iowa Football Coach Association and something that, that I take a lot of pride in, but, you know, don't share with a lot of people or don't, you know, maybe boast about is, um, you know, my dad and I, I think, are the only father and son presidents uh, of the IFCA. And uh, when I had that opportunity back in 15, 16, I was, it was real humbling to get an opportunity to do that because it was an organization that he took a lot of pride in being a part of. It really is a professional organization led by people who are real passionate about the game of football. And, you know, Ken Winkler was the one who gave me my opportunity to get involved uh, with the board of directors. And, you know, that led to being elected as a member of the board and then being a chance to be the president. But I'm real proud of, of the work in that organization that, uh, that I do with a lot of great people, you know, you, Paul, in, included in that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so past president in, uh, of the IFCA in 15, 16. And then through that, those two years, I had an opportunity to start getting connected with um, some initiatives through USA Football and uh, got a chance to attend a couple of national conferences where, uh, you know, you network a little bit and, and meet some people down there, but really came back. And that's kind of where I think our conversation will eventually go here is, is some of the youth football stuff. But that's where a lot of it started and the uh, kind of the took the ball and just ran with it on some of that. And that led to being invited to be a part of the football development model um, committee uh, council, uh, I think is what they call it. But uh, that, that group is made up of people from across the United States. Um, the NCAA's chief medical officer, Brian Hainline, is, our, um, is ultimately our kind of leader in this. So when you see all the stuff coming out about what the NCAA is going to do with uh, COVID on campuses, a lot of that stuff is uh, coming from him and his office and his work with the NCAA uh, organizations. Um, we have um, former NFL players on there. Uh, Troy Vincent through the NFL offices on that committee, um, a number of medical professionals, and then also a number of people from other uh, developmental models and leagues. We had uh, USA Hockey, USA Soccer, had people that sat on this committee to help us understand the role that a uh, developmental model looks like in their sport and how they developed it and got it to where they are today and took a lot of cues from that. And so that's been a real honor to serve on that, uh, representing the state of Iowa. And, and also central Iowa uh, on that. And um, from there, had a chance to then kind of pick up uh, and partner with you and serve on the National High School Football Coaches Alliance, which is an organization of the 49 other football coaches alliances from around the states that we uh, work with and basically just talk about, you know, what's going on in football in your state? How can we best promote it? And how can we continue to make football the greatest game it can be? Um, little little side note for our listeners. Um, you know, back in the day, the Iowa Football Coach Association had, um, a they had presidents every year. And then I can't remember what year it was that they started to go to every, you, you served for two years. Um, but side note to that is uh, your dad was so involved with the Iowa Football Coach Association that he had a hand in writing the uh, governing constitution to the Iowa Football Coach Association, which, which is um, still in place today. So I think that's also a nice little trip down history lane. Um, 
So now we're on to uh, yeah. Like I said, he he's awful proud of all that stuff, and and he should be. You know, from the standpoint that we had, uh, that we're I mean, we're still using it today, and and it was vital for us in our in in the way in which we we function. Um, now onto the Papa Burger section of our of our podcast, which is you know the, the reason why we're little giants. You know, the the annexation of Puerto Rico. Um, can you help me with? Uh, um, what I had for lunch, because I can't quite remember, to um, intimidation. I'll show you intimidation. Um, and who was it? Icebox. I mean, we we go down the – it was such a good movie. Um, but we're going to talk youth football, you know, and, and this is the, the final installment, at least right now, as far as um, our youth sports, you know, what we've talked about, multi-sport athletes. Um, and then we were we were just youth coaches – and youth sports in general, and now we're getting more specific because this is something that that's a little bit closer to to our uh, our wheelhouse um, within when it comes to youth football. And so the reason why you're on uh, is because of what you have done for not only Norwalk but also Down Center Grimes in their uh, youth programs when it comes to football. And so we I just want you to talk just briefly, real quick, about um, changes, some of the changes that that have happened, and then we'll get into some more uh, meat and taters of of uh, that youth football topic. I think the big changes that have occurred kind of started when, when I came home from that USA football conference that first year is they were just starting to promote their rookie tackle game. And I'm sitting there watching the video on this and listening to them talk about what the purpose of the game is and why it's so important when you consider the progression that a kid follows in the game of football. And, um, you know, came home and really started thinking about it a lot and started to engage in some conversations locally with our Dallas Center Grimes football president. And we spent about a year talking about it before anything took place. And then the, the second year after I came back from the conference, I came home and just remember saying to him, hey, we, we, need, to, we need to do this. We need to, um, we can be better than we are as far as what we're offering these kids. And so you know, ultimately, and what we ended on is, you know, we, I guess, maybe reimagined what youth football might look like in, within our community and tried to develop just a little bit of a more of a progression for kids from when they pick it up through flag football to when they get to 11 on 11 school football in seventh grade. And, you know, I think we'll get into what some of those different things look like here in a few minutes. But, you know, that's really how it got started. Is it just a conversation here locally about, how we just really felt that we could offer the kids, we had an obligation to offer the kids maybe some, some, some different opportunities to experience the game in a way that might help keep some of the kids involved. Because at the time, this has been what our, we've gone through two years of this, Paul, two years of our league? Correct. And so I think at the time, a lot of the communities in some of the divisions that we were playing in, they were losing teams every year which is a reflection of losing participation. And, you know, over, over the last two years, as I've talked with people about the reason why we did this, you know, just to kind of give you, I, I grabbed a couple numbers from some of those uh, reports that I picked up. Tackle football participation in 2006, according to this study done by the Outdoor Foundation, was 8.4 million kids participated in tackle football in 06. As of 2018, there was only 5.1 million across the United States. So that's a pretty significant drop, while at the same time, flag participation has actually increased during that same period of time. So it's statistics like that and just seeing some things that were going on um, locally 
they kind of get you thinking. But the one stat that really probably resonated the most with me was this statistic I ran across through the Aspen Institute Youth Sports Survey that said the average age of the last year that a kid participates in a sport. And I'll, I'll give you both a shot here. What do you, what, what do you want to guess? What's the average age that a young, and in this case, I'm assuming it could be boy or girl, but the average age of the last year a kid plays football before they decide to give it up? 12. 12 was my number. Tackle football, 11 years old. Flag football, 10 years old. And so, you know, the average number of years that a kid is participating in these sports, it's only two years in tackle football. So as a head coach and as high school coaches yourselves, we're sitting back looking at this saying, and we've got to be alarmed by that because the bottom line is the experience that these kids are having in this youth sport, which is everything you guys talked about in your last uh, uh, podcast, the experience during that youth level ultimately determines who we get to coach in high school football. And, you know, as I was listening to your last podcast, you guys did a phenomenal job with your suggestions and your, your advice for, you know, what to look for, what pitfalls to avoid, you know, I, I, but I think you guys also get it. And, and I say that because I know that, you know, uh, coach Patterson and, and uh, Tyler Tripp and the Norwalk uh, community is kind of, they're in our league and we're all on board on the same page when a lot of this stuff comes in. But, you know, we start talking about why'd you do it. Those are some of the things that start making you think as a coach, what are we doing here? And, and can we do something better? Okay. So, so we got the why now let's talk about the how, how did you get this to happen? Because as, as the three of us sit here, know, um, and, and I don't really care if I offend anybody or not, but, but the, the world of football is governed by a bunch of meatheads. In, in the sense that we, we continue to think that we have to do it this way because that's the way we've always done it. And there's no way that we can do it any different because we always have done it that way. And it's, it worked for my dad, it worked for my grandpa, it worked for you, and, and we just gotta continue to do that. So how did you get from your why as to wanting to make these changes to now having your own league? Um, as far as those changes being made. So where is, where is the how? So I think it starts with um, talking locally with our, our board president who was so supportive and so on board that he looked at me and said, Scott, if we have to do this by ourselves, I'm in. And I said, well, I don't think we have to because I, in talking with other head coaches out there, I think they have the same concerns that I do. So I call it my Jerry Maguire moment. You know, when he types up this manifesto and hits send and, you know, just kind of waits to see how the world will respond. Well, that was my Jerry Maguire moment. And basically what I did is I called every head coach that I knew in the Metro well enough and just had a conversation with them about how, what, what did they know about what was going on in their community and who were they playing with? And I said, Hey, would you want to come to sit down and maybe just talk about some of this stuff together? And, and looking back, probably the best thing that happened was having the head coaches at that meeting. Cause I think if I would have just reached out to the different league leaders in each community. I don't know that change would have ever happened because um, tradition is the killer of innovation uh, was a quote that I, someone shared with me about the time that we started this. And it's really hard to get people to change for the reasons you mentioned a minute ago. So um, I reached out to most of the people that played in a, a very popular league here in the Des Moines area and just basically said, you know, do you guys want to come listen to an idea I have and um, tell me what you think. And so we met over at the, um, Oh gosh, what was it? Uh, 
legends off of Mill Civic. Yeah. And uh, I pitched it and, you know, kind of started, gave each um, head coach an opportunity to go around the room and just say, here's what's most important for me when it comes to a kid's youth football experience in our community. And I think that was a really important moment because it made people realize really what the coaches valued as far as that experience goes and maybe put the, the focus on the right part of the experience for them. And then um, I just remember very clearly uh, you were sitting in that room, Paul, and you looked at me and, and uh, didn't really raise your hand, but nodded your head and, and kind of just said, we're in. Yep. <laughs> and uh, I thought, okay, good. There's one more. <laughs> and it, no matter what happens, we know we got at least one community that, that might do this with us. And that was going to make it an easier sell. But when it was all said and done, um, you know, some people joined, um, some people didn't join. They had their reasons. Um, they had their, their, uh, uh, you know, purpose for, for what they were doing. But in the end, they had four of us communities there. And um, I, I think, you know, they say the rest is, is history as far as where we are today. We, we even had one community that was with us all the way up until it was time to, uh, to, you know, either get off the pot or take care of your business while on the pot and they got off the pot. Um, yep. And, and it was, it was phenomenal that we made it that far. Um, you know, and I think one of the things that's probably very important for, for us to have a conversation or at least mention, I should say, not necessarily have a conversation is that, the league that you talked about, we, we had the guy that created that league sitting in the room with us. And he was with us along the whole way um, in support of what we were doing because he could see the, the importance of, of what we were doing and, and where we were going and how the end product was going to end up being. You know, and, and I can only speak personally when it comes to why I chose to do um, what we did, you know, and, and I, you also remember there were a couple of times you and I had a phone call that it might just be Norwalk and down center Grimes youth football playing one another. Um, but we, we got Brian Woodley on board and we got Garrison Carter on board, you know, so Johnston and ADM with us. But for me, the, the biggest factor that got me to, to believe in this model had everything to do with that picture that you put up with the, and I don't know if he was a fourth or fifth grader and Julio Jones on the screen and you said, hey, what, what do these two have in common? Well, they shouldn't have very much in common, but they've got, you know, the same equipment, the same size field, basically the same rules. I mean, everything is the same. One's a professional and one's, a, one's an elementary school kid. Why is that the case? And, you know, we're all in the world of, of education, and everything we do in education is a progression. We don't start seventh graders in calculus. Some might get there. Tommy Scallon, but most of the time we do not have kids that are starting at the, at the upper level. So why are we starting kids in third grade with the same rules as kids that are seniors in high school? So that was to me the, the aha moment, you know, and, and that's when I decided we're in. And I remember Paul coming back and talking to me about this. And I think right away I said to you, well, that just sounds like you're doing what soccer has been doing for a long time. I mean, we, we don't put 11 kids, 11 v 11, out on a huge pitch and say, here you go. We, you know, we start off with 4 v 4 or 3 v 3 and then 4 v 4 and keep moving up that model, um, really working on smaller roster numbers and everybody getting the experience and everybody getting the play. And it, it made sense to me right away, especially in some of the light of the concussion data that was trending a certain way at the time and maybe isn't totally the same as it is now. 
I think the, the other thing to, to make sure that we point out is that USA Tennis probably has the best video as far as helping you understand why you need to have some sort of progression. However, the best data actually comes from USA Hockey. They're the ones that did the best as far as understanding, you know, rather than, than going the length of the rectangle, they now take two courts or two, two rinks and they go, they go sideways um, and do it. And, and the data they have is astounding. I mean, it, 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 you have to shake your head when you're looking at it and you're saying, why in the world did we not do this earlier? And, you know, to piggyback on that, football was the only one that didn't have some sort of progression. You know, you look at all the other sports in youth, they all have some sort of progression. Football was the only one that did not. And I think that's really the, the big thing that stuck out to me is that especially, and this, this hit at a good time, like a lot of us, when my, my oldest son started going through this, that's when it really came and, and was brought to light to me. But you guys, you talked about two sports last week. You talked a lot about soccer last week and baseball last week. And I'll throw in your reference to hockey. I think those three sports have the best developmental model that is out there as far as introducing the game to the, to the kids at the right age with the right specifications, the right rules, you know, uh, take baseball. You don't go from T-ball to full-size baseball diamonds. You go T-ball, right. coach pitch. Then you go modified rules on a short, shorter basis. You know, the one thing I've learned through all this is that football is not an Olympic sport. And all the other sports are Olympic sports in some way. You know, we have a USA soccer team, USA baseball team, USA hockey team. And ultimately their goal is to compete and win gold medals every four years. So their programs have come together with these development models in order to introduce the game to the kids to develop their skills along the way so that they are producing an athlete who is of an Olympic caliber at a certain age so that they could go compete on a world stage. Football doesn't have that. Okay, football doesn't have that opportunity as an Olympic sport. And so because of that, it kind of got left behind, I think, in some ways, and sort of was just a grassroots development. And so everybody just kind of developed whatever they wanted or whatever, you know, they felt was was best. And that's not wrong. But we missed out on three or four levels of things that could have taken place that were going to help the development, help the skill development, make it more age appropriate. We just took a jump right over all that stuff. And I think now that you know, with USA football's lead and people locally, like our two communities, we're trying to maybe correct that a little bit. And, and you can say that it wasn't wrong, but it for surely wasn't right. It could be better, that's for yes. sure. Yeah, when it comes to that. So what, what does it look like now? What's this, what does this developmental model look like um, when it comes to youth football in Norwalk and Dallas Center Grimes and, and ADM and Johnston, and now we've picked up, um, is it three teams from Perry? Yep. Third, fourth and fifth, we don't have a sixth grade team from them, but, but we've expanded here just a little bit. But what does it look like? So really what we did is we, we went through and said, you know, what, what should, what's, a, what's a pathway that a kid can have a great experience, it's age appropriate, with a focus on fundamentals, so that when they get to seventh grade, which for three out of our four communities is when school ball starts. And so third grade, we, we play flag football. I think the first, the first change that happened, the biggest hurdle we had to overcome is we took third and fourth grade um, foot, tackle football and threw it out the window. Um, and we play tackle or we play flag football now. So third grade plays tackle or uh, third grade plays flag football uh, on a 40 yard field that's 40 yards wide. So we shrunk it down and we play eight on eight flag football. Um, smaller field, smaller numbers, 
just like some of these other models in hockey, soccer, and baseball, where we've shrunk things down, lessened the number of kids on the field so that it's an easier game to learn. It should be a more enjoyable game to play. And we really stress to the coaches about the importance of fundamentals. In fourth grade, we play the exact same game, but we put them all in full pads. So it looks, you know, someone says, says it looks kind of odd, but it's fully padded flag football. But the nice thing here, still eight on eight, still on the smaller field, but you stop and think about the first time a kid puts on a full set of football uniform, my own son said to me, holy cow, dad, it's really weird catching it through looking through this face mask. So what we do now is we give them a year to play a game they've already learned the previous year, put on the pads, and get used to playing the game of football on the pads without the fear of, for some kids, or out, without the worry of having to tackle. But what's great is, is that towards the end of the season, if you wanted to in practice, we talked with our coaches about you can introduce a few tackle things in practice late in the year to sort of give them a taste of what's coming. But, you know, it's still a flag football year. And then in fifth grade, again, same game, same numbers, same size field, but now we let them tackle each other. So we're not going to change the game. So they don't have to learn anything new. They're going to play a game that they've played for two years. They have a high level of confidence in. They have a lot of experience in. Now let's let them tackle because I can guarantee you that any fifth grader running out in the field is going to be thinking not so much, gosh, I hope I run that slant route grid today. They're going to be thinking about, is it going to hurt when I get tackled today? And so now that that's on their mind, let's not change the game. Let's let them play something they're familiar with and introduce that tackling piece. And then in sixth grade, they play 11 on 11 for the first time. The, uh, the, the important thing to make sure that we, we make, make all our listeners aware of is the fact that, you know, when, when we put, and this is old school football, when we put our kids in full pads, 11 on 11, and we give them this playbook that, that isn't um, restricted at all, they've got all kinds of things going on. I mean, they're learning how to work in inside of equipment. They're learning how to tackle. They're learning how to be tackled. They're learning. I mean, there, there are so many things. It's sensory overload, really what it is. Yeah, and yeah. when you go through the progression now of third grade, learning how to play, you're not having to worry about tackling. You're just worrying about some of the, the basic fundamentals. The formations are the same. The defense is the same. And then fourth grade, rather than changing a whole bunch of things, fourth grade, we just add pads. So now everything is still the same, but now you can get used to wearing those pads. And then in fifth grade, nothing changes other than we add tackling. And that progression allows kids to be comfortable and grow into what it is that's going on, as opposed to just throwing it all, you know, on the floor and say, here you go, have at it. We, we are helping them understand and how to move and how to be um, football players and athletes, as opposed to scaring the heck out of them when they're in third grade with with all the stuff they got to put on well all my all my kids up to now have, have uh, not played football quinn my the number three of my four he played for two seasons and decided he didn't like it uh, but the one who says he really likes it and loves it is the smallest of a small bunch um you know hugh our our fourth and he really wants to play football all i think about is they, if they would have put that little fella out there i mean he's got a big mouth but if uh if they put that little fella out there on 11 v 11 he would have walked off after the first season just said you know i I can't run as fast as these guys and you know of course we're hoping for some late blooming but right now you know he really loves it you know he, he, he gets the opportunity to get out there and play and it's and despite a little bit of the talent gap 
um, he still is participating at a level that he really likes it. And so that I get excited, you know. Um, he might someday turn out to be a fullback, and in Norwalk's offense, you don't get on the field very much as a fullback, but <laughs> we'll see. Not nowadays. So I think one of the things that the, the, probably the best thing, guys, that we did, and at the time I don't know that any of us thought of it, though, is we, we dictated as a league formations and defenses. Mm-hmm. Because by doing that, what and our justification was, hey, here are the only formations you can run, and here's how the defense has to line up. So you take it out of the hands of the volunteer coach to have to figure out what offense you're going to run. Here's your formations. And, and some coaches, you know, Garrison gives his kids um, some plays and some other ones don't. But what you do is you say, it's not so important the formations and plays you run. It puts that emphasis back on the skills and the fundamentals that you develop. And that's where the USA football stuff has been really supportive for us because we have the materials to give to coaches and say, here's what a fourth grade kid should be learning and here's where we should strive to have them at the end of their fourth grade experience. Because ultimately what we want as high school football coaches, you know, whether you're the defensive coordinator, the head coach, or the offensive coordinator, you want kids to show up that, are, that have skills developed. And I'll I bet you anything that, you know, Coach Scallon could tell us, you know, how some of those practices go with some of those soccer different levels. You know, I, they, they have to have different skills that they want focused on at different ages. Am I correct? Yeah, there's, there's, uh, um, all the big clubs have a curriculum that they try to run you through and they start off with all skills and they don't really get tactical until you get almost to, I think they talk about trying to be some of the tactics of soccer at age 12, but 13, 14 on more, more advanced concepts than just the like basketball give and go. I mean, you teach that right away, but give and goes overlaps and those, those things all start to come later, the more advanced concepts because you know, if you if you can strike the ball a certain way, if you can trap the ball, if you can move off the ball, which is more a more advanced concept, you're starting to get a good player. You know, and one of the things that that uh, also made a difference for us is is the head coaches did have an awful lot of say in what was important. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and and we got to we got to have our voice heard um, probably more so than the youth guys when it came to. Um, you know, what is important? What do we want to see our seventh graders, eighth graders, and then, then the, the future high schoolers have when they're coming out? And it has nothing to do with, you know, being undefeated and um, crushing everybody because they were so good at, at doing, you know, whatever in their, in their league. We want them to be sound in some of the fundamentals. And how do you help them do that? Well, you eliminate all the other thrills and thrills and, and uh, fluff, you know, when it comes to football and you, and you eliminate all that and you make them focus on the, on the fundamentals. And that's been, it's been huge for us. Yeah. I think that's a huge step. Uh, when you say that, I, um, I'm not trying to be cocky when I say I, I probably can, well, we did it the one year devised a defense based on the personnel we had and right before camp started and just, then it comes down to instructing our kids and what they want in high school. We just had a bunch of kids that year with Sam George and whoever that could, they could run, they could hit, they had good skills. So, you know, when you get to high school, you can, you could pick a defense and teach them um, as long as you go through all the steps that you have to install and things like that. But it, it doesn't matter if they can't block, if they can't tackle, if they can't run, if they can't catch. I mean, that's. Or if they quit. Yeah, right, right. exactly. <laughs> that's one of the questions I was going to ask. And I don't know if I'm jumping the gun on this, Paul, but. And it may be too early to really gather that data, but 
Um, is there a connection between the numbers that are at Dallas Center, the numbers that are Hoover, the numbers that are at Johnston, ADM, you said, because um, I think all of our programs sit pretty well numbers-wise compared to some of the some of the schools we play. Did, and did you throw Hoover involved. in there? Like, was that a Freudian slip that you threw Hoover in that list? Or did I throw what? Hoover in there? Yes. So I don't know where that was coming from. I might have just I might have just been mumbling and said like who are instead of Hoover. <laughs> you started scowling at me, so I knew I said something funny. So take take Hoover out. I just I wonder about the correlation of head coaches being involved to the level that I know you two are. I know Paul sits on our board. I know you obviously got your super involved at multiple levels. Um, I don't know about ADM and Johnson's head coach involvement. Um, but has this league increased your participation numbers or is it too, too early to tell? And is your level of involvement one of the reasons why the numbers are going up? Because the youth coaches say, well, he's the man. And if he's the man, then we should be doing it this way. No, the part of the reason why Brian Woodley is involved from, from Johnson is because of declining numbers. And he knew and, and had, the, had the sense that something had to change for them in Johnston as far as how do they, how do they teach football and, and how do they increase the, the participation? And so this is the way that he felt like he was going to get uh, the, the best results was by doing what we're doing. And so that's why he's a part of what we're doing um, at this point in time. Garrison, you know, it just so happened to tie right into him taking over at ADM. He had found out that he was ADM's head coach um, in that spring, you know, coming from Washington. And so it was a perfect storm for him coming in to be able to make some changes at the youth level. Um, and so that's how that got tied in. You know, that, so those two not being here to be able to speak for themselves, um, that, that really is the backstory as to why those two were involved. Now we can talk the results and, and Scott, um, you, you can speak to that. Yeah, I think, you know, we had all the schools enter participation data and we tried to go back for a couple of years prior to us doing this and then include these, you know, we're only entering year three of this. Um, but what I can tell you is that, um, A, it's a little early, but B, each community did report an, a, uh, more participation in year one than they had the previous year and more participation in year two than they did in year one, especially in grades three and four, which is kind of where we expected to see the most interest. People want something more than maybe a, a rec uh, program. So they like the idea that it's a competitive league where we play other teams, but they're not yet ready for that tackle experience yet. And so I think our third and fourth grade levels might be some of the best things going for us right now. Um, so it's a little early, but I think, I think we're moving in the right direction. Um, I think that when you watch the game and you start talking a little bit about results, um, I, I think both of you have seen these games being played um, and I think the fourth grade game and the fifth grade game are my two favorites. Uh, I, you know, the ball is being thrown all over the field, which is what I think all the head coaches like seeing too, because of how the high school game has changed a little bit. But um, I think <laughs> as he, as the defensive guy is shaking his head, <laughs> um, I think that um, our early results are positive. And I say that because of the feedback we're getting locally within our communities but also the fact that each year we have two or three more communities reaching out to us and saying, hey, um, can we come and talk to you? And I think like a lot of things, 
Um, I think maybe your best indicator of culture, which I know you guys have talked about in previous things, is um, what are your participation numbers and retention like? Kids will want to be a part of something that they feel connected to and important uh, part to be a part of. Um, and then I think uh, the same thing kind of goes here, is that when some other schools reach out to us and I think see the good thing that, that we're doing, they want to be a part of that. So I'm optimistic and excited about what's happened in years one and two. Um, we're, we're not perfect by any means. Um, I, I don't want to come off as saying like we have the answer to, to fix everything and anything when it comes to youth football. But I will go on record saying this. I'm awful doggone proud of what we're doing. I have tremendous amount of respect for the other three head coaches and three league presidents for, I tell them all the time, the, the courage and the willingness to try something new. Um, I'm not afraid to try something new. I'm not afraid to admit when I was wrong, but I think, you know, we've got a good thing going here and I think it can grow and um, make the game a better experience for kids at the, the ages that we're working with them at. So you said that Aspen study, uh, uh, I think it was Aspen 11 year olds or when they stopped playing football. Um, yeah, the, um, it's around a, the average age and, and I've got it here actually sitting on my desktop, I can read to you the, the title of it, but it says the average age children quit regularly playing a sport. sport. And so it's got uh, tackle football at 11.9, so almost 12, um, flag football at 10.1. Just in comparison, basketball is 11.2 of their last year. Um, soccer is nine. Um, and so it gives kind of an average length that they participate in before they give it up. Now, it brings you into a whole nother conversation about sports specialization and, um, you know, maybe what are the reasons for some of those things. So, you know, I, I think those numbers and statistics are helpful, but I don't, I don't know that I also want to hang my hat on just that one study and one stat because I, I don't know a ton of it. But at the same time, I think it's, it is insightful to see what some people are finding out there about kids and their participation rates? Well, two things you said, you know, more, more communities are reaching out to join. I think that's always, obviously, if people are reaching out to join, they see something that they think is they like. Um, but also your, your participation data, if you, if you, I know you don't want to use one marker, but if you use that marker, um, you're now getting into the thick of whether or not you're keeping kids out longer you know, you're, you've been three years, so now you're getting into that age where they keep playing or not. So it'll be interesting to see uh, once you're six years into it, yes. if you can track that cohort and are they, are they, how many of those are still playing? And I think that's, you, you hit on an important point there is that it's one thing to look at total numbers of participation, but as we all know, third and fourth grade numbers are always going to be high. What's going to be interesting to see is you take that cohort group and you follow them through three, four, five, and grade six, how many did you retain through that experience? That's going to be the true indicator on whether or not a kid's having a great experience. Because the bottom line is, it's true for high school kids and it's true for other kids. If they ain't having fun, they're not going to come back. Well, and I think we both know, or at least uh, you, you told Paul this about your own numbers and how you feel your program's going to look when you can have 25 kids out. I can't remember the exact number, but 20, 25 kids Above out. 20 for his senior class above 20 you know when you're above 20 and Paul talked to you about that and he talked to me about that and I was like oh that's interesting for us to think about going back and mm -hmm. and you know football's a number game too and, yeah. and they got to have fun and they got to like it but you also got to have the number of kids to play especially uh, we do some similar things about how many kids we try to get on the field yep 
And I think what shouldn't be lost in all this too is, and, and you guys mentioned this, I think in your previous episode, football is that I think one sport you can pick up late in your athletic career and still have tremendous success at. And if that's one thing that I wish parents and kids understood, just because you didn't play in grades three, four, and five does not mean that you shouldn't try it in grades seven, eight, or nine. Because I, I think it's a, just a very different sport than uh, maybe even a, a soccer or basketball or baseball for that matter. I think you can pick it up late, and I think you can be very, very good at it. Tom talked about that, um, and I think that was last week. That, yeah. that, and maybe it was two, two episodes ago, but, but he's, the, he's the one that ended up talking about that. You know, the, the other thing to make sure that we, we remember is, is that you know, we keep getting asked, you know, did you make this change um, because of safety, because of, of things that were going on in the world, you know, of, of concussions and, and the health of, of football players? And I can honestly tell you that um, from my end, the, the safety is secondary to just the right way of, of helping kids developmentally progress through a sport. You know, and, and when you stop and you think about all those other sports that, that have the progression, um, and football did not. It just did not make any sense to me. And so I think that's huge for, for us and our kids. And, and we're going to start to reap those benefits um, as we go through. You know, and, and um, one of the things that obviously no one gets to see except for us three is all the head nodding um, that has happened throughout this entire podcast. You know, because every, everything we're talking about, we're in agreement with. You know, the well, three of us are all on the same page when it comes to that. And Paul, you say, you say secondary. And this is where I might uh, push back with you a little bit. I say ancillary. You know, it, it okay. might not have been the first thing that you're thinking, but it it uh, is value added. It's it is safer. It does lessen that that context. So it might have not been your driver. Uh, it might have been the driver is how do we make football better at the at the appropriate age. Uh, but I think an ancillary impact of that is that it, it's safer as well. Yep. Um, and and you know one of the things that uh, is is interesting is as you get you know people talking about you know so when we went to a, a town uh, in their youth meeting and we had and we had a very interesting meeting with them um, one of their biggest things was so are you doing this because your numbers are declining and I want to make sure that people understand our numbers were not declining we weren't sitting in that room at Legends because our numbers were dwindling we we were sitting in that room at Legends because uh, a good friend of mine in the, in the coaching profession said, hey, do you want to come listen to this idea for youth football? And I wanted to. Um, and, and then from there, it took off. You know, and, and as I have shared with many people, you know, the, the slap to the side of the face, you know, like on Tommy Boy when they're outside the dinosaur um, place and they go to the, get, the, get the chicken wings and the, uh, um, the shrimp and the shrimp cocktail right afterwards, you know, that board to the side of the face was when Julio Jones and that kid were on the, on, the, um, on the screen together and then start talking about all those other sports that have progression, and we don't. That, that to I, me, was that moment. I would tell you, Paul, we're in the exact same boat because my first question to our local guy was, how are our numbers? And he says, our numbers are as good as they've ever been. It was not a numbers thing. The bottom line was I felt that I was in a, in a position and knew some other people that I think shared my same opinion where I just think we needed, to, we needed to offer our kids something better than what yep. was being offered for them. And it was the right thing to do. So as we are, before, oh, sorry, we, before, we, before we move on, when our, our uh, sponsor, non-sponsor is O'Shea Chevy, and then you make references to Tommy Boy, 
um, that could cause problems for our sponsor and non-sponsor. I, you know, if you're going to make references, you should be making references to the sponsor and non-sponsor. O'Callaghan Auto Parts, the <laughs> co-sponsor of today's <laughs> podcast. There you go. The, uh, um, I guess we could have talked about, you know, the moment where, uh, you know, it was, it was, uh, oh, what was the kid's name? The, the stud. Was it Icebox? No, that was the girl. That was girl. Who was the guy that was moving refrigerators? And he came through and he was going to take that kid's head off and he, you know, he snuck his head all the way down through the shoulder pads and then he came through and he took his helmet off because his head wasn't in there. I suppose it could have been that moment um, in which I figured out that uh, that's the way he wanted to go. So last piece of this, uh, moving forward, you know, what, what, uh, what do you see? Well, what I, what I see is uh, I, I hope that we, we do have – you and I have talked often about this. Um, I think you and I both feel that we have a little bit of a responsibility to try to spread this, um, this, this, this format to help educate as many people as we can. We've talked with people as far away as uh, the Missouri River um, and, and people up in uh, northeast Iowa that have called and asked about it. Um, so I think that's one component of it. Um, but I think the other thing is it's just continuing to – I think the next thing for our league is coach education and coach development, because ultimately that's where we're going to make our money. Um, now that we've kind of got the format and we have this league set up, we've got to continue to get um, coaches on board with um, understanding what the purpose of our league is, you know, and for people that don't know, um, we keep score, but we have no league standings and no end of the year tournament. You know, we truly play the games just to play the games and getting people to understand that and putting the emphasis on the fundamentals probably coming up with a curriculum that that would probably be my, I guess my biggest goal for our league in the next uh, two to three years is uh, having a curriculum like soccer has and like baseball has that here's what a practice plan looks like for this age level. Here is what the skills that should be taught at this age level. Here are the drills to teach those skills really make it simple so that anybody feels like they can come in and help coach if they have a passion for the game. The uh, uh, last thing from me, is you know making sure that people understand we, we are rivals uh, at the high school level. Um, you know, Dow Center Grimes and Norwalk have played each other in and, and, um, many, many sports, you know, because we're now in the same conference, but also in football, even though we're, we're not necessarily district opponents all the time, but, but we at least try to keep going with, with uh, district games. And so sometimes that, you know, why are you working with Dow Center Grimes when it comes to youth football? And, and my answer always is this isn't a, a Norwalk and Dow Center Grimes thing. This is a, this is a football thing. And mm -hmm. anything that we can do to help make the game of football better is, is got my attention and, and it's going to have my, my time um, and my focus. And so that's the reason why we do what we do is, is trying to make football better, you know, and, and some of the things that I talked a little bit about last week, you know, just how much you and I have, have traveled together and gone to meetings together and been a part of things together isn't a, it isn't a rivalry thing. Um, it, it is a, it's a football thing. And I want to make sure that our listeners understand that you know, we're, we're going to compete like heck, you know, when we come together and, and, and play each other in the fall. But outside of that, we're going to work like crazy um, collectively and trying to make our game better and, and trying to improve that. So I thought that that would be one last thing for us to make sure we, we talked about. Scott, you got anything closing there? No, I. Um, it's not a rivalry unless both teams are are 
competitive against each other. I mean, that's, there's no doubt in my mind that I want to beat Dallas Center because I don't want to hear it from my family. It's not really Scott or Bob, it's my family. I'd have to hear it from them endlessly. So that's my main motivation for the week. Which is fair. I mean, that is, that is, you know, you, you see them way more than you see Scott or Bum. So you, you want to make sure that you win so that you can, you, you've got the leg and the, uh, and the bragging rights for all the family get-togethers that you have. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's, you know, Jack Dewey didn't play football, but he played basketball and he beat Norwalk, I, whether it was on the way to state or whatever. So now all I have to hear is about Jack Dewey beating us last thing. So can't have that happen. Yeah. Um, so now we're going we're gonna to move on to the history portion. You know, and last week was the, the, the single sport dominating female high school athlete. This week, of course, now is the multi-sport dominant athlete you know somebody that you knew or or watched or um were around for you know the three of us um, we could do it that way um for high school girls and for me uh, i'm gonna i'm actually taking scallon's pick from last week i'm going jill martin and the reason why is she's a four sporter uh, in my opinion you know she she was really good at softball ended up not playing softball her senior year because i think she ended up going to drake that summer to uh participate in basketball you know as part of their um, workouts and things like that but but she was really good at tennis uh, when they finished third we, we had this debate and I can't remember they either finished second or third her and Shelby Gearsdorf um, in tennis and in, uh, in doubles and then she obviously was really good at basketball I don't know her and Kelsey Cermak have to be up there for us as far as points scored in their career um, and I don't know who's got that record it, who it is uh, it might even be a six on six player that might have the record but i would guess that jill's up there top five uh and then of course she was she was you know her fourth sport was uh, flag football or uh um, powder puff football and she was really good at that so that's my pick phenomenal phenomenal that's my pick you two what do you got well i already kind of talked about mine i mean jenny clark I, I, this is my soccer bias coming through but she was on uh, she played basketball and uh, was strong there. State champion in the long jump. Um, dominant soccer player uh, that I didn't really like. One tournament I got a coach because Coach Bromo had to go up to uh, Iowa to watch his son graduate. So they told me to come coach him in the uh, Norwalk soccer tournament. So I basically just told Jenny, I'm just going to let you do whatever you need to do and I'm going to stay out of the way. Those are the best kind of athletes to work with. Don't have to do much coaching. I'm going to stay in the DCG family here, but um, uh, the first one that came to mind uh, isn't the one I'm going to pick, but Madison Waymeyer, um, you know, she's now our assistant AD here. She was a pretty good standout in track and cross country and went on to have a pretty good uh, collegiate career, but Ashton Yassi. Ooh. And I don't know if uh, anybody might may or may not remember Ashton, but basketball, softball, track, and volleyball. She was the, the four-sport standout. And it was a multiple-year varsity starter for her in most of those sports. And so I think uh, that's the one that stands out for me. That's a good one. I mean, as far as a four-sporter. We do our triathlete award. And I really, after, after all these talks we've had, I really believe somehow, at least at Norwalk, I can't speak for Dallas Center, but we should be doing more to um, represent those students because it's got to be unbelievable to be 
four sports, multiple year starter, something like that. Just the expectations yeah. um, and the level of ability you have to have mixed together. She went on to play. She went on to play Division two basketball at Wayne State and had a great career over there too. So you know, you guys were talking about the the multi sport kids in the past too. You know, here's one that managed to be three four sport athlete and still went and played Division two college ball. Yeah. Um. You know, again, that, that's, that's your interactive time to, to send us a, a message, whether that be an email or a text or, or something on social media. You know, get a hold of Tyler and, and those accounts, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and, and let us know who your pick is for the multi-sport dominating, you know, best athlete for a girl uh, in high school. And, and let us know the, the, you know, the why. You know, when did Highlands, you see her? What did she Highlands, do? Highland's really catching on. He understands how to pick these. Yeah. Thinking, Next thinking thing. out loud. You just, you list a couple, two, three, and you can't be wrong that way. I, <laughs> Bob I Sanders totally agree. With you don't upset anybody that way, right? <laughs> Here we go again, Bob Sanders. And, and you know, the only one that paid attention to that was Jeff Gravy. He was the only one that sent multi multiple picks on, on two different occasions because well, that's the way Scallon did it. Great. You, you now have, you now have a following. Um, it's, yeah, the, it's the the cult. Don't yes. don't pin yourself down to one kid. <laughs> Perfect. So now we're going to move on to uh, the final piece, which is which is the positive things going on. Uh, and I've got two. You know, the first one, of course, is just the fact that we get back to working out. Um, we we get to be around our kids, and and uh, that starts tomorrow, you know, July one. And and very excited about that, as as everybody is across the state. You know, we we may be. Um, a little anxious with all the different things that we have to do, but but the the overall excitement outweighs anything else that's going on, and and we're going to figure it out. You know, I think one of the things that has come out of all of this pandemic is how resourceful and how uh, creative we can be in the education world, uh, and that includes the coaching side. Um, we, we can figure it out. You you give us what we can do. Um, you know, give us give us the parameters and the guidelines, and we're going to figure it out. And, and that's where we're at right now with, with tomorrow starting up. And, and I'm pretty excited about that. Um, the second is Rico Gafford uh, opening his pub um, called Rico's Pub. It is at uh, 2314 University Avenue and it's in the Drake neighborhood. Um, you know, and of course, Rico was a, a, his freshman, sophomore, and junior year, he was at Des Moines East and then senior year he transferred over, actually second semester, I think, junior year transferred over to uh, um, Dowling and, uh, uh, finished his senior year at Dowling and then went to Wyoming for uh, football and then was, I think, picked up as an undrafted um, free agent to the Titans, got dropped by the Titans, and then I think they were still there um, and he got picked up by the Oakland Raiders, was the practice squad, and then in the middle of the season, I don't know what happened, but he got brought up to uh, to the squad, you know, the, the show, and uh, had a pretty good season. And so he has come back home and uh, started up this pub. And I think it's, it's really important for us to, to talk about that because we, we had a young man who was successful in high school, you know, and, and from the Des Moines area who went on to have a pretty good collegiate career at Wyoming, made it professionally, and now has come back home to do some good things. And I think that's really important for us to highlight and, and uh, you know, kudos to Rico and, and all of his business partners to make this happen. And, um, if you get a chance, head on out to uh, 2314 University Avenue in the Drake neighborhood and, and visit uh, Rico's Pub. You guys got anything from a positive standpoint you want to throw in there? 
Those are both good things. I, uh, I'm sure Coach Heitland is going to echo my sentiment that we're really excited that July 1st is here and there's an opportunity to see the kids again. I agree. Yeah, I just the it's been fun getting to watch baseball and softball again. Feel good for those kids and those coaches to have that opportunity. So um, want to thank you for listening, you know, and thank you to Scott for for being our our third guest, um, episode nine of Talking the Walk, Little Giants. Um, do you two have anything in closing? Nothing final. No, thanks for thanks for coming on, Heitland. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Hopefully, I don't crush your ratings in the wrong direction. No way. No way. Um, so appreciate you listening and, you know, we're signing off talking the walk, uh, Tom Scallon, Paul Patterson, and our, our guest, Scott Heitland. Thanks for listening. Closing time. Thank you for listening to the talking the walk podcast show. Yeah.